Reporter Brianna Sachs covers climate disasters for The Post, which means for her, this past week has been jarring. Yes, it's been a feel, I feels like a year. I was in Maui for the devastating wildfires there that, as of now, have killed about 115 people, which is the deadliest wildfire in recent U.S. history. And then I'm getting text messages from friends in California that this other fire is popping up in Northern California. It was, like, looking really, really bad. And I'm flying home, and then there's this hurricane that's casually supposed to be coming to California, which has never happened. And luckily it went into a tropical storm, but we were all bracing for a massive water event, which we're not really set up to handle. And then we had an earthquake on top of everything else. When Brianna got home to Los Angeles and she saw all the rain... There was one person she wanted to call right away. Well, hi, Patrick. Hello. How are you this morning? Oh, well, I feel like I've gotten a little glimpse into your world with the disaster beat living in uh, Death Valley lately. I immediately thought of my source, Patrick Donnelly, because we had connected earlier this month to talk about the York Fire, which is still California's largest fire this season at 90,000 acres. And that fire went through a lot of the Mojave National Preserve. And what happens after a fire goes through land like that is it creates a burn scar. And a flash flood can happen immediately in a burn scar. So I wanted to see if Patrick had experienced that close to where he had been um, working and also if his community was okay. You guys have had quite the the summer. I think last time we talked, it was about a fire, um, and now you have a flood. So are the locusts coming next, or what do you think? <laughs> we actually had a good crop of locusts earlier this year, grasshoppers, after the, yeah, wet, bingo. the wet winter. Yeah, I mean, we've just had one thing after another. We ha- we've had the wettest year in recorded history in the desert. We had the hottest July uh, in recorded history. And then just uh, two days ago, Death Valley had its wettest day in recorded history. So we're ping-ponging around from one extreme to the next. And while they got lucky because they didn't get the amount of rain that was predicted, which is about four and a half inches, which would have been incredibly devastating, They got half of that, two and a half inches, but that's still, in one day, the most that they usually get in an entire year. And they experienced flooding, roads were impacted, and his little town is actually now cut off from the greater region, so they can't really get in and out to get supplies. And so that is, you know, that is of concern, especially in this community. We have a lot of older residents, a lot of retirees, folks in poor health. So the area where he where he lives has just been through a lot so far in, in a short amount of time. But for Brianna, the most striking thing that Patrick shared was a photo that he'd taken near his home. I opened my phone and he's in the middle of this glassy 
crystal clear water surrounded by desert mountains in the morning. And he's smack in the middle of it, smiling in this little raft, holding a, you know, a paddle with a hat on and just looking like he's living his best life. I was boating on a small raft in a ephemeral lake that was formed by floodwaters in the middle of the desert outside Death Valley. Normally, it's just a barren desert landscape, and now it looks like someplace you can go swimming and post up for the day. So it's like beautiful and serene, and also, wow, why is this here? <laughs> is this alarming that this is here? Yes, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's in the Mojave Desert, right? So when you think of a pristine, pretty large-looking lake that just formed in the middle of the desert in August in California, when temperatures are usually like, you know, 110, 120 degrees, that, that's pretty wild to think about. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Michelle Borstein. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. Today, what this strange lake in the desert and other recent disasters tell us about our new climate reality. Later in the show, we'll also hear about Brianna's new reporting from Maui, where residents say public officials ignored the threat of catastrophic wildfires, even after one struck the island in 2018. So remind us, what are the disasters that you've covered in the last year or so? Yeah, I covered the Buffalo blizzard. We're learning now today that more than 30 people have been killed because of the storm. I covered the flooding in California, multiple floods in California in the north and, and the central part of the state. I've been covering the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. President Biden has warned that there could be a, quote, substantial loss of life right here in Florida. Which is still very much an active cleanup disaster zone, as well as extreme heat in Florida across the country. Wildfires in Maui, and I did not have to deploy for the tropical storm here in my hometown, but was prepared to do so. Tonight, across the Southwest, they're doing their best with the destruction Tropical Storm Hillary left behind. Is California sort of like the ground zero of climate disasters, or what's the role of California in this moment? I really want to try and caution people away from this narrative that California is like all of a sudden this new hellscape of climate change. I think we have always had extreme weather. It's just our climate. Like, we'll get prolonged punishing droughts that are being made more extreme by climate change. And then we get really heavy rain winters, and then we have fires, and we'll have mudslides. And it's been this way since I grew up here. I will say that it's becoming more extreme and the disasters are becoming worse, but that's also because, you know, the weather and, and fires and floods, that's mother nature, and it doesn't become a disaster until people get in the way and there's loss of life and property. And we've been building more into at-risk areas not just in California, but in Florida, all over. So the developing of that is also a, a big factor where people are living in the wildland urban interface, as we call it in California. There's more people living there than there used to be 50, 100 years ago when there might be a massive wildfire. People just weren't there, so we weren't reporting on it, right? So while California is always in the news, 
for disasters, and yes, they're becoming more extreme, it's also just because of population and just like the nature of of how we've developed. You said that California has always had, you know, these kind of extreme weather incidents. So what is it that's going on now? Yes, the whiplash we've experienced has always been this way, but I would say that it's becoming more extreme and sudden and where we oscillate between much more intense droughts and much more intense rainstorms. And our infrastructure just isn't set up to handle that constant back and forth. And they're coming at really bizarre times. And like we, the last time we had a tropical storm here, I think was in 1939. We never get rain like that in August. In August, we're like praying for rain. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we might be washed away. So those those types of events, I would say that is different. And I think it can seem like, oh, great. It's drought. There's fires. Rain's great. Like rain's going to help this stuff. Is that true? Does the rainfall help? Well, I mean, it does and it doesn't. I I think about the Thomas fire, which torched a ton of Ventura County at the end of 2017. A relentless and behemoth blaze, the Thomas fire forced thousands of new evacuations today in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties. And then a few weeks later, we get this really big, powerful storm and all of a sudden that land becomes a massive mudslide that goes straight into these homes in Montecito. Hundreds of emergency responders are searching for victims right now, breaking through roofs and sifting through mud. There are 17 confirmed dead and another 17 that remain missing. And and that's what can happen to communities who are in burn scars, who then um, experience these, these big, powerful storms. In some ways, yes, the rain is is great, but when it comes at such a deluge and all at once, like we we the land is already suffering. We don't have the plants to hold the soil together. So the impact of those rains actually causes more damage. And we're also kind of grappling, trying to figure out a way to save all this water. We've been behind on on that for sure. Save what we mean to retain it, like find ways to... Yeah, like to stop it from all just like running back into the ocean. We're like, wait, we need this water because we know a drought's coming. So we've been slow to build the infrastructure to capture all of this water. That was a big issue in the spring up in Central California where a lot of farmers and landovers were upset with the government for not having set that up. And it was kind of county by county and sometimes, you know, parcel by parcel going at it on its own, trying to dig reservoirs and and redirect water for their crops because they know that we might not get this again for five years. So you've talked about, you know, this whole stream of extreme climate events that you've that you've been, you know, reporting on in recent months. So what happens after a population experiences one of these things? What comes next for them? For something like Maui, which I think people are still having trouble processing. I mean, they still haven't found all the bodies. Like that's a whole town that's gone. And and where do you put people, like, especially on an island? Like, where are they going to live in a place that's already having, having a housing shortage? We saw this 
in paradise when the campfire tore through and, and most of that town burned. And then you have thousands of people who are displaced. And I, I reported on that following up in the months and, and years, and I'm still going back up there. And people are still living in trailers. Some people are homeless, like they can't afford these skyrocketing rents. They lost a community that was very special and rare where they were able to live in like a back house or an apartment that probably wasn't up to building code, but they they could afford it, right? So when you think about what comes next for people, like it's it's a life change. Like they'll never be the same. They're going to be in a limbo for a really long time trying to find some type of stability. You know, their jobs are gone. So what happened, you know, school school reopen, where are the students going to live? So it's all of these ripple effects that one event can have that last years, um, not to mention like the mental health and the trauma that these people are going to have to carry with them um, for a really, you know, for it, that, that, that just doesn't go away. So recovering from a disaster like that is, is a years long process. And then we're having them all the time now. Like they're not just like these small scale little things, like they're like massive events that require a ton of resources. And we are, I think, struggling to really catch up with that. Yeah. Is there a way to even explain that you know, invisible or financial kind of costs, like if what the price tag is or what the price tag is compared to what it used to be, like how do we think, how do we even think about the fact that like, oh yeah, now this is a huge part of our budget. I think what's so hard and complicated is that a a county and a state often can't do it alone. They need the federal government. And the federal government has to wait for the county and the state to ask them for help. And they're kind of in the back seat. Like that's just how our disaster response infrastructure works. So a lot of time there's these just holes and gaps that happen. And it's very confusing to try and wrangle all these agencies together. And where's the money coming from? And I think, you know, we're having these billion dollar disasters happen almost every month now, it it seems. So I don't know how you budget for that. The big thing is the mitigation. There's all these things that communities can do, some of which cost a lot of money, like burying electrical grid infrastructure underground, putting in big fire breaks in communities. They're huge money sucks. But I think we're at this point where we can't get away with not doing them anymore. And that's, I think, that the conversation is, is these disasters are going to happen, but what can we be doing to bolster communities to make them more resilient and, and doing just the hard grunt work of hiring more firefighters to go out and cut grass and stationing them when there's high winds and changing building codes, things like that, that it's just like a year-round job to prepare for a disaster. After the break, what Brianna uncovered about missed warning signs in Maui and what public officials in other communities could learn from those mistakes. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. 
Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So we're talking about this, you know, this subject of preparedness and, and things that communities could be doing and aren't doing. And what are you finding about Maui, how things could have been different there? Yeah, that's been a really kind of infuriating and, and painful part of the reporting is that a lot of residents I talked to said, well, this this kind of happened already. Like, we had been warning about this. In 2018, a, a really eerily similar situation happened. They were preparing, in August, preparing for, uh, for a hurricane. The winds kind of fueled from, from that hurricane pounded West Maui and in the middle of the night ignited a fire and then drove it over these dry, overgrown grasslands straight to unsuspecting homes. Residents got out within minutes of their lives. Two of them sustained third-degree burns. Dogs died, left in cars. The Firefighters were responding. They ran out of water. There was no sirens alerted. And then the fire went down straight to Lahaina and burned parts of Lahaina, forcing evacuations there. It was chaotic. There was not really a lot of alerts. People didn't know where to evacuate to. It just sounded like mayhem. And after that, they called a meeting with their county and state leaders, including people from the fire department, the electrical department, the police department, the emergency management agency. And they asked them these questions, which are recorded in this three-hour video that I watched. You said there's FEMA supplies in the harbor? Where are they? Don't worry, we're covered. We have plenty of water and food right now because our community stepped up. But you failed us and we won't forget that. Why didn't Maui Electric shut off the power ahead of these high winds? Like, they knew this was coming. Why did our firefighters run out of water? Why didn't you guys sound the sirens? Why didn't our cell phone get alerts? Why was the response so disjointed? Like, where was the aid? And then in the years following, they showed up to these county meetings over and over and they flagged that this could happen again. We really need to take big steps at protecting our communities. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And those changes didn't really happen. And then in 2023, five years later, also in August, we have this hurricane. It produces these powerful winds. It produces multiple fires in an area that kind of start and catch residents by surprise. The sirens don't sound. People didn't get cell phone alerts, they say. So it was just this like, I'm like, oh my God, this was a huge warning that this could happen to this area. And, and then it and then it did. So that's something to me that that really haunted me is, is that 
they knew that this was at that risk. And it's it's just, I don't, you know, budgets and emergency management and planning, it's all very, very difficult. And they also were dealing with a pandemic. So that drained a lot of resources. But it was it's just hard to ignore, you know, residents' experiences and um, their accounts of, of trying to warn officials that this could happen again. And it did. We talked about whether the attitude is changing towards some or, or the political will towards investing in prevention and that sort of thing. Do you feel like there's sort of like a new generation of building types and infrastructure like that are that are more, you know, aware of climate disasters? Like is your sense that like there's a whole world of tools once we do start facing this stuff that is being designed and engineered and thought about? Definitely. I think, you know, there's always a silver lining after something like this because there has to be, right? Like, but but also it's such an opportunity for change and redirection. And I think that's what people on the ground in Maui told me that they're hoping this becomes. I think we're going to see that hopefully after Hurricane Ian. I don't know. I've heard a lot of developers have like swooped in there to buy up this land, but hopefully they'll be retrofitted to better sustain very powerful hurricanes. We saw that with California is that just the infrastructure is becoming more resilient. We have better technology put in place at predicting these these events and like when they might happen and what they'll look like and which homes are at risk. It's just like, are we going to listen to it? So I, I think after a disaster like this that shakes us to our core, a lot of the time that's what we need as humans to pick our heads up out of the sand and really look around and change deeply long embedded habits and patterns. And it's like steering a big ship, right? A government. And I, I think that it takes a disaster like that to steer it in a different direction. And I have a feeling that Maui won't ever be the same and they'll be prepared for anything probably after something like this. Yeah, you mentioned the silver linings and sort of, you know, this mix of human failing and sticking our head in the sand and connection and helping each other. So how do you cope with that? I mean, how do you look for something of hope in what you're seeing? And what do you hear from other people? It's such a good question and it's such an important one because, again, in doing this type of work, the burnout is a, is a really real thing. You know, the, there's trauma um, that you carry yourself like, secondhand from hearing people suffering and, and seeing what you see. And I, you know, in 2018, a fire, the Woolsey fire went through my hometown and I was, weirdly, I was reporting on it. And then all of a sudden it jumped the freeway and it went straight to the house where I grew up in my neighborhood. Mm. And I'm now reporting on something that's damaging where I grew up. And I I lost all my childhood mementos in, in, that, mm. in that fire. And that's something that I now can connect with people about when they when they go through this. But the the resiliency that comes after that, that like, you know, I think the sometimes the best of people arise in um in a catastrophe like this. And when I'm on the ground, it's really inspiring to see how many people show up, all these volunteers to help people in need. Like they're not sleeping either. They're putting their own money, time, 
into trying to get people clothed and fed. They're taking them into their homes. And then there's all these experts who come in who are nonprofits who stay on the ground for months just to help this community rebuild because they've seen it so many times. And for a community that hasn't, it's it's just so shocking. I think something that Patrick said to me earlier in our conversation that I really needed to hear right now is that... We still have this incredible, beautiful world and this incredible, beautiful desert. And, you know, it's a wounded ecosystem, um, but it's still incredibly special. And, you know, in, in this modern age with societal decay and everything, aren't we all a little wounded you know, and, and so it's it's the wounded people and the wounded desert kind of marching forward together as best we can. And I think that that's something that's important to remember is that there's all this, this doom and gloom, but among it, there's a lot of connection and healing and power and resiliency that, that comes from a loss like that and that we always move forward. And we hopefully make sure that something like that doesn't happen at the same magnitude again. I think we just get smarter. Brianna, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, no, thank you for for having me. Brianna Sachs covers climate disasters for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Robin Amer and Maggie Penman. Thanks to Alana Gordon. And I'm your guest host, Michelle Borstein. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.